The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce this live recording of 2050 Degrees of Change, an award-winning podcast hosted by Johanna Wagstaff, Senior Meteorologist and Science Reporter with CBC News. Johanna has hosted two award-winning CBC podcasts, Fault Lines and this one, 2050 Degrees of Change, which asks the question, what are we willing to do now in order to change the future? I'd now like to welcome Johanna Wagstaff to the stage. I'm here in the forest between Lac La Biche and Fort McMurray. Tornadoes still a threat tonight. In fact, I've never tracked so many tornadoes moving over the same area. And Miami-Dade County was hit with hurricane force winds and storm surge last night. We've got a rule called the 30-30-30 rule. Temperatures over 30, winds greater than 30 kilometers per hour, and relative humidity down below 30%. That is a recipe for an explosive fire situation. That is the CBC Senior Meteorologist, Johanna Wagstaff. Johanna Wagstaff, CBC News. CBC News, Vancouver. Case wasn't clear. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. <laughs> For all these years that I've been covering these kinds of extreme weather events, people ask, is this connected to climate change? And the answer is yes. This is 2050 Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how climate change will shape our province and the way we live in the year 2050. It's the year 2050, and Ariadne is 12 and a half years old. In the original six episodes of this podcast, we heard from some of the leading voices on climate change to find out what life will be like for Ariadne. How will climate change affect everyday life in BC by the middle of the century? It is 8 a.m. on Friday, August 5th, 2050. The high today will be 32 degrees. Environment Canada has extended the heat warning. This is the sixth consecutive day above 30 degrees. Ava, do I have to stay inside again today? I was hoping Mom could take me to the beach. Outdoor recreational activities are not recommended at this time. The wildfire in the southeastern part of the province is approaching record size. Almost 2 million hectares of the province is now burning. There is an air quality advisory in effect for Metro Vancouver. But I'm tired of staying inside. Summer's so boring. And I don't have anyone to play with today. Can you find me a new VR holiday that I haven't already been on? Life in 2050 is very different than it is today. But we didn't just guess what it would be like. Climate scientists use different scenarios based on how humans will act in the future and how much greenhouse gas will be pumping into the atmosphere to predict how our global temperatures will change. There are several different scenarios, ones where we change nothing. We could see catastrophic increases in global temperatures by the end of the century. Then there's the so-called best-case scenario, where global temperature rise is kept well below 2 degrees. That's what the Paris Accord you've heard about is aiming for. But everything in our podcast, the science, the scenarios, is based on a model that falls somewhere between the two. It's a model that involves a lot of change and a lot of hard work. But it imagines that by 2050, we've managed to cut global carbon emissions by half and are on track to keeping it stable. So what does this all mean for BC? We ask Trevor Murdoch. He works with the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium out of the University of Victoria, and he says BC will warm up. We're looking at still about two and a half degrees of warming for the province as a whole. When you're averaging over the whole province, there's going to be some important regional differences. So for Vancouver and Victoria, we're looking at about two and a half degrees as well. Um, but there may be larger increases in the interior uh, in some parts of the north. The variability in some places is more than others. So, you know, two and a half degrees of warming on the coast may actually be more like a bigger change relative to historical variability than... Um, even a larger change like three or four degrees somewhere else in the province. 
and that means wetter, warmer winters and less snow and ice. A low snowpack affects everything from ski slopes to sea levels and fish stocks. Stefan Deary is a professor of environmental science and engineering at UNBC. He sees some of these changes already in the Fraser River Basin. So the overall precipitation hasn't necessarily changed the amount on an annual basis, but what has changed is the phase of that precipitation. We're getting much less snow, perhaps 20% less snow, and much more rain. And the timing of that precipitation is more towards winter and less during the summers. If you have less snow but more rain, you might think that just balances itself out in the water system. But it doesn't work like that. Snow seeps into the water system slowly over months, while rain... Rain can come all at once. Rain, when it falls on the ground, will essentially go straight into the creeks and the rivers and the Fraser River, ultimately. So it drains off very rapidly. And so if the precipitation occurs in winter, then that's going to run off right away and not accumulate in the snowpack and build up that water resource that we would normally expect to, uh, to have accumulated by the end of the spring and melt out during the summer. In 2050, the spring thaw comes fast and early. Flash flooding, mudslides, regular washouts on highways. Without snow melting gradually, groundwater isn't replenished through the year. And that means water supply issues. For farmers in 2050, it's impossible to escape the impact on our food supply. And warmer waters also changes salmon migration. Vanessa Mink-Martin recently completed her master's at UBC on the ecology and conservation of Pacific salmon. They're such an incredible, iconic animal and to witness that migration is really it's really incredible but it's like as I'm getting to know them better I'm also learning about all of the risks and all of the threats to that migration and it's it's really scary to think that you know they some of those populations might not be around for you know decades into the future it's like if we see an increase of only one degree celsius in average summer temperatures over the next hundred years, that's going to triple the number of days where fish are experiencing temperatures that are above the critical limit, so 19 degrees. The fact that we've seen so many record-breaking high-temperature years in the past 10 to 20 years, you know, this is, um, it's a trend. The trend in climate change is going to reshape our cities as well. Doug Smith is the City of Vancouver's Director of Sustainability. Change doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow evolution. And Vancouver's been changing dramatically for the last 20 years if you compare it to where we were in 1986. Uh, compared to where we are today, it, there's a massive change, but it kind of sneaks up on people. It's not overnight. And we're going to see the same thing as we head towards 2050. We're going to see a lot of um, changes in where we live, how we live, how we travel, and the energy we use throughout the whole city. We're talking significant costs. The province did a study with the Fraser Basin Council a couple of years ago that indicates that if we do nothing to deal with climate change and sea level rise in the, the region, the, basically the lower mainland, we would see about a $32 billion cost to our economy through damage, through lost jobs, you name it, a whole bunch of things. And to respond to those costs, to build up uh, dikes and levees and sea gates and things, is in the neighborhood of about $10 billion for the region. So we're talking huge, huge amounts of money that will really have a negative impact on our economy. And we know forest fires in BC's interior cost us more every year. By 2050, forest fires will be more frequent and more devastating. Here's fire ecologist Bob Gray. We're at a point right now where we have a lot of carbon stored on the landscape, and, and that's the problem. And, I mean, standing here in the side of the interior, we're looking at a forest that historically probably had about 30 to 50 stems per hectare, and right now there's, there's probably close to 4,000. If we want this to survive the next fire, the fire needs to be on the ground. So we have to remove all of this excess biomass and we have to maintain this in that, you know, low density, tree density, grass state through repeated prescribed burning. And we need to do that over large areas. You know, smoke is a huge issue. We talk about doing a lot more prescribed burning and people don't want smoke. Um, the issue, though, is how do you want your smoke? Uh, there is no no smoke option. So that's a glimpse into our future, and no one's left yet, especially since the present looks very similar. We've already seen some of what experts predicted, and far sooner than expected. 
British Columbia is struggling through one of the busiest, most dangerous wildfire seasons in its history. Hurricane Michael came crashing ashore mid-afternoon. J-50 has died. This is kind of what extinction looks like. The Peace Nechaco and Upper Fraser East regions have now been elevated to a drought level three. The scientists are clear. It's up to the government to decide whether to make the unprecedented policy changes they say are necessary. Canada's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change insists that it's not possible to move any faster with the change to clean energy. Here's Catherine McKenna speaking with the early edition host, Stephen Quinn. Tell me how the purchase and expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline helps us meet our climate targets. Well, so when we looked at the the Trans Mountain expansion, um, we looked at that in the context of Alberta's climate plan. So Alberta has a hard cap on emissions from the oil sands. So it fits within that. And, you know, I know a lot of people, especially in British Columbia, are wondering, wait a minute, you know, we don't love this project. But the reality is this is a transition over decades. Yes, we want to do it as soon as possible, but you don't shut things down overnight. That's just not realistic. People no, are still but, you, but you, you slow down, you level off. Instead, what you're doing is expanding a pipeline so it can carry three times the capacity that it carries now, bitumen to be shipped wherever to be, to be burned. Um, so we know, we've actually seen that more uh, bitumen is going by rail now. So when there's a demand, it's still going to go. And this pipeline, has, it fits within the climate plan. And it's like a budget. When you have a plan, like Alberta has a hard cap in emissions, it has to fit within that plan. We know that we need to move to a cleaner future. We need to be doing a lot more. We're investing in renewables. We're phasing out coal. Um, we're working with companies across the board to find clean solutions. Um, and we need to do that. And we need to work every single day. But at the same time, you need to bring people with you. This is a huge project that creates a lot of jobs and investment. Um, and you can't stop things overnight. Judging by the calls we get in response to our climate coverage on CBC Radio, some of our listeners feel resigned to catastrophe. It's getting uh, late in the game. Uh, if it's possible to get out of this game, I think we've left a bad legacy for the future uh, of humanity. I have lost faith in, in the government because we're just being driven by corporations. And why are we not realizing this? If Canada doesn't act now, then our children in 10 years' time are going to curse us. Don't tell me that in 30 years my kids are going to be uh, living in some post-apocalyptic wasteland and fighting for scraps and water but we have to think about jobs. But there are experts out there who believe we can do it. Solutions are out there. And this is what we want to focus on right now. What if we can do something about all of this? What if it's not too late? Do individual actions still make a difference at all? What can each of us do to change for climate change? Is voting too much effort? Well, if it's not too late to alter the future, what would we need to hear from lawmakers, from government, Let's imagine what those future announcements would sound like. The federal budget passed today in Parliament, including a $5 billion investment in carbon sequestering and clean energy. World leaders agreed today to implement a global carbon tax of $50 a ton. The binding UN agreement gives countries just two years until 2028 to implement a new tax. The U.S. has shuttered its final coal-burning power plant. It was the last nation in the G7 to do so. Today, the big five banks announced they will divest from fossil fuels entirely by January 1st, 2030. Canada announced it will resettle 50,000 climate refugees this year as part of the OECD's agreement to help mitigate the human and economic costs of climate change on developing nations. So is this all just some political environmental fantasy? Is it plausible or is it really just too late? The steps needed to change climate change will be controversial and disruptive. Here in our audience, we have some people who have been thinking a lot about this. Uh, thank you for coming up to the microphone. Deborah Harford is the executive director of the Adaptation to Climate Change team at Simon Fraser University. Welcome. Thank you, Joanna. Deborah. Is it too late? Well, we have already set climate change in motion and we're feeling it, but it's not too late to stop it escalating. 
We have a very big task. We have to change the system that's degrading the planet and escalating risk. That means in the 21st century, all policy planning and decision-making, whether political or personal, has to be made through a low-carbon resilience lens that's designed to reduce emissions and build resilience to climate change. And there's so much we can do about this, and there's so much we are doing. Wherever I look, people are developing solutions from First Nations developing solar power to health authorities reducing their environmental footprint to cities all over BC developing climate plans. But we also know that truly effective climate action must address the resilience of the most vulnerable and that it also must take into account that ecosystem health is human health. Other species are being wiped out way too fast. But in the, finally, I think the most major priority is to change the narrative on climate. Telling stories is what enables us to collaborate. With technologies like this podcast, we can connect around the world. And the key now is to shift the story away from shock and horror. We've got to confront the facts, um, but we've got to shift to an emphasis on benefits and opportunity and show people why acting on climate is good for health, security, economy, youth, and world peace. So what does give you hope that this shift will happen in time? Well, for me, um, I'm going to quote Joan Baez, uh, the antidote to despair is action. I work on climate action every day. Uh, collaborating with others, uh, identifying goals and solutions and working towards them gives me hope. And I see people at every level taking action from youth and faith networks, indigenous groups, large and small businesses. I'm encouraged by the scale of action um, at the global scale as well. Countries working on the sustainable development goals, the Paris Agreement, China, Britain, India, and others announcing they'll end sales of gas-powered cars, um, the costs of clean energy and energy storage dropping fast. Um, in terms of changing the narrative, one exciting example this year is the Global Commission on Adaptation, which will see Ban Ki-moon, Bill Gates, and the head of the World Bank seek out benefits and opportunities of building adaptation. But finally, my son gives me hope. He's 25. He's part of a generation that wants change, that supports a shift to a greener way of living, and they know, as we do, that the changes we face are arising from millions of individual actions in terms of what we choose to eat, where, drive, buy, and how we vote. So I want to end my comments with a 24-24-24 call to action to listeners. Within 24 hours of hearing this, do something to benefit climate change. Then do something in 24 days. And 24 months later, do something as well. And your actions will make a difference. Thank you, Deborah. Also with us in the audience is William Chung. He's an associate professor at UBC's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries, and he's also lead author on the upcoming IPCC report on oceans. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joanna. So what's the most important thing we need to do now to protect our oceans? There are two things that I feel strongly that the oceans are being threatened right now uh, in, uh, in terms of its sustainability. First of all is um, overexploitation of the resources, and secondly is climate change, and they are all interrelated. We know that uh, global fisheries, many of them are overexploited, and many of them are in calendar. The Atlantic cod is a key example of historical overexploitation. But then climate change affecting the ocean's temperature, acidity leading to decrease in oxygen level in the oceans, all are affecting fish stocks. It leads to changes in the distribution of fish stocks. We are already seeing fish stocks moving into um, uh, colder waters in the, in the north, um, and some of the fish stocks are not doing well because of too warm the water. And this makes eliminations of overfishing much more challenging. For example, it makes it more difficult to determine what is the uh, good level of fishing or um, how uh, different countries that are sharing similar fish stocks uh, should respond when the fish stocks shift their distribution. But over the years, we have gained a lot of experience about how we can tackle, for example, overfishing, where we know the key drivers and we know what actions we can take to reduce and eliminate overfishing. And there are already a lot of initiatives um, in Canada and also elsewhere, they are tackling that and have some success story. And we can build on that to actually um, tackle these challenges. We also know that by eliminating overfishing, we can 
build a lot of capacity for fish stocks as well as for people who are depending on the fish stocks for their livelihoods, such as fishermen, First Nation people, um, to adapt to the changing ocean conditions. So I think uh, by eliminating overfishing, that provides a lot of uh, co-benefits in terms of both uh, a sustainable fisheries as well as eliminations of um, uh, or help the fish stocks and fisheries to adapt to climate change. And then more broadly, I think um, there are a lot of individual actions that we can take to support both uh, more sustainable fisheries as well as dealing with climate change issues that would affect the ocean. First of all, um, there we can be more um, careful in picking up what we eat, uh, what we uh, we know there are lots of initiatives, um, many of them in calendars that help consumers uh, to know what uh, seafood are more uh, are from sustainable sources. And uh, so we can be more conscious about our choices of seafood so that we can provide that incentive to support um, sustainable fisheries and sustainable use of resources. And secondly, um, I grew up in Hong Kong, where um, we, I, I didn't... Uh, election is not a, a, a strategy that we often think about in um, supporting initiatives of government and things like that. But uh, after I moved to Canada, I have this uh, privilege and, uh, and responsibility, actually, to make uh, my choice to support government that I th uh, to do things that I, I think is a uh, way to do. So I think that's um, a really uh, powerful um, tools for individuals to actually... Um, support um, initiatives uh, or government that have initiatives that would promote, um, uh, in this case, um, um, support, uh, sustainable fisheries as well as uh, eliminations of um, or helping reduce uh, the impacts of climate change uh, in the oceans. William, thank you very much. It sounds like you've made the choice to implement these individual choices in your life as well. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to introduce our panel now. Uh, joining me on stage, as you may have noticed, snuck up here, are three very special guests. Simon Donner is the Associate Professor of Climatology at the University of British Columbia. Grace Nozick is getting her PhD in law at UBC studying climate justice, and she is a founding member of the student-led UBC Climate Hub. And of course, David Suzuki is a Canadian environmentalist, a scientist, an educator, and the longtime host of The Nature of Things, and a great dresser, which is also have to say. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. And I also want to welcome you, our audience, to stand up in front of the microphone uh, throughout the panel chat uh, when you have a question. We want to hear what you are doing in your lives to respond to our changing climate. So please just come up and start forming a live behind, line behind the microphone whenever uh, you have a question or a comment. So to get things started, uh, let's pose a question to our panelists. First of all, Grace. Can you share what you've changed in your life to reduce your own carbon footprint? Yeah, for sure. So some of the choices I've made are to go vegan, uh, to cut back immensely on my flights, uh, and to not buy anything firsthand. But the thing that I'm actually more excited about is just ha deciding to be a climate ambassador in every part of my life. I thought about where I had the most influence and leverage, and for me, that was at the university, because I'm a student there, uh, with my family and friends, and in elections. And so in each area of that, I have kind of put as much time into trying to advance climate justice as possible. So at the university, um, you know, I found other students who cared as much about climate justice as I did, and we went into every possible stakeholder meeting we could, you know, we, and they have to take meetings with us. We're students, right? That's, we are the ones who have leverage at the university. Um, and we worked our way all the way up. And I think we've really made a huge difference in advancing climate action, which I'll talk more about a, a little bit later, but then your family and friends, you know, and even strangers. I talk about 
to so many strangers about climate change because when you talk about building political will on climate change, that sounds kind of sophisticated and fancy, but what it means is that we talk to each other and we say, this is the most important norm, making sure that we advance climate justice. I care about it. Will you care about it with me? Um, and so, and then elections at every level, I'm a voter. I love that power of being a voter. And so I go through, I look at my municipal, state or provincial and federal level elections. I block out that week in my calendar, and I know that I'm going to volunteer in getting out the vote for climate justice, that I'm going to go back to those family and friends and say, you're going to get out the vote with me, uh, and just kind of use that influence that we all have. I think that is the thing we can all do. Can, can you share with us how big the, and I know it's, it's uh, brand new, but how big is the UBC uh, Climate Hub now? Yeah, so, I mean, we just held an event, the Climate Solutions Showcase at UBC, that got at least 400 people out. Um, but we have way more people wanting to join than we can even meet that capacity. We just started a climate mentorship program that has 160 students who will be meeting twice uh, twice a month, day in, day out, building this kind of robust, vibrant climate community. Um, and we've done all of this in less than a year. Fantastic. Uh, Simon, what do you think the most important thing one person can do to make a difference is? Well, you know, scientists can actually rank the, the impact of different activities that you can fly less, you can drive less or drive a more efficient vehicle, you can buy greener energy, you can eat a lower carbon diet, which means eating less red meat. But probably the most impactful thing you can do is to vote. Right? And it's a four-letter word sometimes, but voting is the most important thing you can do. Within that, though, it's really just about being an engaged citizen. You know, and that means writing, calling, and stalking within the law, your representatives, um, at, at all levels of government. And here's the thing about politicians. They talk about average Canadians all the time, but they don't hear from average Canadians. They hear from people on the two sides. So they hear from activists on issues, and they hear from the people that are opposed to all action on issues. But they probably don't hear from most of the people listening to this. And so we need to do more and more to encourage our governments, tell our representatives that we care about this issue. Because... Governments can't actually solve the problem on their own, but they can set the incentive structure that allows the rest of us to solve it. David, you've been a, a climate justice champion for decades. What has been the most meaningful change that you've seen in recent years? Well, there's no question the revolution is happening. You know, if you look at the whole area of, of wind and, and solar, and we've really got to thank Germany for jumping in and uh, making a big commitment to getting into renewable. They did that at a time when the cost of solar panels was 10 times or more greater. But because Germany made the commitment, they were a big enough market to really drive uh, entrepreneurism and, and bring down that, the cost of uh, solar panels. So the solar panels right now are competitive, and we've got to thank Germany for that. It showed you know, that leadership and and it, the impact was on the world. I, I must say that the discouraging thing to me, when McKenna was put in as the Minister of the Environment, when George Heyman was the Minister of the Environment, I talked to each of them and I said, look, we're your people. You know, environmental groups have been working on these issues for decades. So come to us. If you want to know how do we achieve these uh, deep cuts, come to environmentalists, for God's sakes. We've uh, been working on these for years. Listening to her now makes me want to puke. She should be, she should, uh, be pulled off. She's just mouthing stuff. And I think we've run out of time. We don't have time now. And I think you've both identified the important thing, which is if we have a democracy, we can now go and demand that the people we elect to serve us, serve us and not a corporate agenda. The problem is environmentalists are kind of regarded as a special interest group. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're the ones that like the environment. You know, and those guys over there, they like ballet. And then they're the opera lovers and the car racers. And, you know, we're a special interest group. And the Greens only exacerbate that sense. If you see a, a debate of all-party uh, all debate and the Greens aren't there, journalists act like, oh, well, the Greens aren't here. We don't have to talk about the environment. What the hell? The Greens don't own the environment. I've said to Elizabeth May for years, there shouldn't be a Green Party because the Greens should be the foundation of every party. So we've had the challenge now issued by the IPCC, and we've got 12 years, according to them, um, 
I think it's much more urgent than that. But they said 45% off fossil fuels by 2030 and 100% by 2050. So that's the, that's the, the, the target. And now we've got a much shorter, a shorter time. The next election is October 21st, 2019. And as long as climate change continues to be an issue of how, do we have a carbon tax, how much, uh, what about cap and trade, we're not going to do it. What we've got to do now is to get politicians, every politician running for office at whatever level, the first thing we civil society have got to do is demand, what is your position on climate change? If I vote for you, are you going to make reduction according to the IPCC target? Is that your highest priority? And if not, we're not going to vote for you. And we're not going to do it as environmentalists. This has got to be a broad tent. The impact of climate in terms of foreign aid, in terms of immigration, with uh, climate refugees, in terms of hunger and poverty, the, uh, social justice, all of these areas that people are working on are going to be overwhelmingly impacted by climate. So we've got to make a huge tent now. We've got to get all the doctors in Canada, all the scientists in Canada. We've got to get all the people worried about, about poverty in this country, about uh, income inequities. All of these people doing good work have got to come together and say climate change is our highest priority. We got to get a party, doesn't matter what party is elected in the next election, We've got to get all the parties saying climate change is the number one issue, and we've got to do that. The minute you get the commitment to reach the IPCC target, all kinds of things happen. We cancel the pipeline. doesn't make any sense if that's our target. We cancel a $40 billion liquefied frack gas plant. It doesn't make any sense today. We cancel fracking. We cancel all of the uh, subsidies we're giving to the most profitable sector of society, the fossil fuel industry. You know, just making the commitment, all kinds of things happen. I know that individuals are prepared to do the, 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 the best. After Fukushima, the Japanese voluntarily, without any legislation, reduced their energy use by 20%, and they've maintained that reduction. And there's still a lot more they can do in Japan. I know that Canadians are ready to do it, but we need to have that signal. This is the target, and we've got to get on with it and get the support of the people we elect to office. So, let me just say... I think if we saw the, the response of kids after the Parkland massacre, those kids drove gun control onto the agenda. And what we've got to do is have children who aren't on the political landscape because they can't vote. Children now have got to be getting up there and demanding that whoever runs for office does something about their future because it's within their lifetime they're going to feel a heavy impact. So nice to see on that note so many uh, different people of different generations here today and, and even up on stage. Uh, we're going to have lots of time for questions. Uh, first, I just want to uh, call on somebody else from the audience. Uh, Stephen Shepard is a landscape architect and the director of UBC's Urban Forestry Program. And you do a lot of work on how climate change will look in our own neighborhoods. So what kind of potential do you see when it comes to uh, collective or community action? Well, I think there's a huge potential for collective action. We call it social mobilization. But the research for sure shows that people, when they work together, can make big changes in greenhouse gas emissions and building community resilience. Um, and so one of the things is that when people see other people talking and working on climate action, they see things in their neighborhoods, they start to join in. Uh, and so things start to spread. People get benefits like bulk buying of things like solar panels or trees or uh, you know, EV charges and things like that. So when people work together, they have a lot more power. And I think what's happening is that uh, you can see it, for example, uh, with the current natural gas crisis we've got here in BC with the Enbridge explosion up north. We've already got a sort of 20% reduction in, green, in uh, gas usage right now. That's a social action because someone asked them to do it because there's sort of a need in the temporary, on the you know, temporary side. But really, that should be a long-term goal. 
Uh, governments have been a little slow to uh, encourage some of these uh, community-led actions, uh, but there's a lot of growing interest in shared collective action on carpooling and car shares and uh, things like uh, tool sharing and community food, things like that. And these are things that we are seeing now, and I know that you've seen them now in the community. So that is, that is a hopeful change on the community level. Thank you. Uh, I think we've got time for a question before we get back to the panel. Uh, can you just introduce yourself and then uh, pose your question or comment? So my name is Heather Murdoch, and I'm a professional engineer. And um, I think it's great that we're talking about what we can do as individuals and our personal choices uh, to address climate change and also to exercise the privilege that we have as voters. Um, and I think it's also important to talk to young people in particular that there's a lot of opportunities to orient your career towards addressing these issues. I work on climate adaptation-related issues every year, doing risk assessment, mostly for flooding. And um, I'm curious if the panelists have any additional thoughts on how we can inspire young people people, uh, build that capacity, and help people to orient uh, the work that they do uh, to addressing um, both mitigation and adaptation issues. Well, Grace, this is something I know you're working on right now. Would you like to respond? Yeah, sure. So I love that idea. We are actually actively working on um, having maybe a climate careers fair based around climate change, um, but also there's right now a, a climate career commitment that some groups in BC and across Canada are taking on where young people can say, you know, whatever I do in the future, it's going to have to do with climate. And then they'll be able to use that pledge maybe to show employers that they're going to have to gear their work towards climate or, or think about it if they want to hire the top, top young people coming out. Um, but I think in general, we are really interested in kind of people in school are really busy and tired. And I think this holds true for all areas. So how do you bring climate to them? How do you really make it easy to feed yourself in? And so that's why we kind of started this climate mentorship model where we've reached every discipline uh, in the entire university. We, we span the entire range and we're creating these pods around themes. So art and climate change or just transitions or biodiversity and climate change or sustainable engineering. And we're bringing people together, graduates and undergraduates, so that they can talk every two weeks um, and come up with projects organically and really brainstorm together what it looks like to come at climate from that lens. Um, and then we think, obviously, as you normalize those conversations and, and start them, they spread outwards across the campus. But we do have 60,000 students at UBC who each have their own communities and will be going on into the world. And we think at the UBC Climate Hub that we can make many of them, you know, kind of robust climate advocates. Thank you, Grace. And see, opera and environmentalism can go together. All right. <laughs> uh, another question? Hi, I'm Rena. I am a journalism student at Langara College, and I've noticed a theme among my peers where um, many of us are putting the onus of responsibility of climate change on larger corporations and not taking individual action and kind of copping out. I was wondering if the panel had any advice on how to make people care and make people realize that individually our actions do matter. Well, it's interesting. We've been arguing, everyone on the panel here has been arguing how about how important it is to vote, right? And why do we vote when there's millions of people in the country and your vote doesn't sound like a loan it would count, right? But of course, you're contributing to a collective action problem. And I think almost everyone in Canada recognizes that voting uh, is part of the, you know, part of the democratic process and that each individual extra vote could make a difference, right? And so the same thing is true with personal action. So sometimes I have, I have friends, I have family that will say, well, why should I do this? Because my neighbor's not going to do it. And I was like, well, you know what? Why do you vote? Why do you do anything that has a, that has a collective action challenge? And we, we practice this in other sort of lines of parts of life, but not maybe not necessarily when thinking about climate change. Uh, and there is also a lot of evidence that we are very heavily influenced by our neighbors. So for example, if your energy bill says how much energy your neighbors are using, you may lower, lower your, your, lower your energy use, uh, to sort of match them. Right. And so there's a greater potential and sort of peer pressure and social mobilization around that. So you're not against climate shaming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. But and corporations I'm, are at the heart of it. They are the problem. 
1988, the environment had risen to such an, a, a concern across, around the world, in fact. In 1988, a guy ran for, for President of the United States and said, you vote for me, I will be an environmental president. His name was George H.W. Bush. He didn't have a green bone in his body, but he, but he said it because Americans had put it at the top of the agenda. 1988, Margaret Thatcher was filmed picking up litter in London, and she turned to camera and said, well, I'm a greenie too. 1988, Brian Mulroney was re-elected prime minister to show he cared about the environment. He, he appointed his brightest star to be the minister of the environment and brought him into the inner cabinet. His name was Lucien Bouchard. I interviewed Lucien three months after he was put in that position. I said, what is the biggest issue facing Canadians? And right away, he said, global warming. I was really impressed. So I said, how serious is it? And these are his exact words. It threatens the survival of our species. We have to act now. So in 1988, the politicians heard it. The, uh, the climatologists meeting in Toronto, 200, 300 scientists met there, and they said the evidence is in, humans are causing climate change, and called for a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. That was it. That was the call. The environment was at the top of the concern, and guess what? The fossil fuel industry, they knew, their own scientists told them, that climate change was happening and humans were the uh, burning fossil fuels were at the heart of it. They then began a campaign led by Exxon to spend tens of millions of dollars every year in a climate, uh, uh, in, a, in a campaign to say it's not settled, this is junk science, this is a part of a natural cycle, all kinds of baloney in order to maintain their profit line. For 30 years, the fossil fuel industry has deliberately deceived the public in a campaign of, of uh, confusion. And I think um, if that isn't a definition of evil, I don't know what is. And so let's name it for what it is. It is the corporations because they have only one reason for existence. doesn't matter whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's the tobacco industry or, or whatever. Their only reason to exist is to make money. The more and the faster, the better. And Exxon shows that in, in spades. And the problem we face is that they have convinced the, the world that they're at the heart of the economy and the economy is our highest priority. So government actually thinks serving the corporation is what they're supposed to be doing for the benefit of Canada. We've got to break that chain. So David, what does give you hope about what's happening right now? Well, that there are these people here. Quite frankly, yesterday I was in a Skype uh, connection with Hamilton where they had an all-day conference, all children, and they were high school and, and elementary school kids running the whole program. They blew me away. They had me in tears because they got it. They know it's about their future, and they're just getting on with, with telling adults they want us to do something about it. So I really think they're at the heart of it. They had, they had poets. I couldn't believe the poetry was just amazing. It was just right on and, and it hit you right in your heart. That's what gives me the hope is that kids have got it. And now we grown-ups have to give them the forum and allow them the chance to really, uh, to really make, their, make their statements. And it should be Every politician now should, should encounter that. That's what civil society is about. Yeah. Oh, just to add quickly to that answer, uh, there's a really interesting study by Jeffrey Supran and Naomi Oreskes, and what it shows is not only did Exxon uh, undermine uh, belief in science or manufactured doubt around science, they also kind of um, made people seem like they were less able to tackle it. That was the other thing that they were trying to do, like disempower citizens from making them feel like they could do anything about climate. Um, and I think that's why voting is such an important part, because it is this mediation that we can take on at a systemic level. Um, the the state regulates corporations. So if we think something needs to change, um, if we're worried about the actions that they're taking, really one of your most powerful levels, levers is voting and getting other people to vote. Let's see if we can get a couple more uh, questions from the audience. 
So my name is uh, John O'Riordan. I'm an ex-Deputy Minister for the Provincial Government's Environment Ministry, and I'm also an adjunct professor at uh, UBC. So the two pr um, premises that I used in my course at UBC was one, that in a sustainable society, economy follows ecology, but education precedes them both. And the second promise is that self-interest has to align with planetary interest. So if you look at the first one, the order should be education, ecology, and economy. The current order is the reverse, economy, ecology, and education. I tried for 10 years to get a course going at UBC that would be universal, that everybody at UBC would have a basic literacy in climate science and being um, a world citizen. But there's a lot of rigidity and bureaucracy at UBC and they weren't interested in, in developing a cross-campus course. So I'd like to ask our UBC friends, what are the chances of creating such a course at UBC within the next five years so that everybody has a common understanding of the uh, ecology and the economic linkage and become citizens of the world rather than self-interested citizens? Great question. And yes, yeah, Simon, this is your jam. Well, so I can't speak for the, you know, the curriculum committee of the university, <laughs> but, uh, but actually the, there is and has been for a number of years a push at UBC to have sort of sustainability uh, taught across the curriculum. So there are courses that are, there is a course that's offered that actually is neither faculty of arts nor faculty of science. It's sort of sustainability for the entire campus. But really the idea was rather, you know, I think as, as David Suzuki was mentioning earlier, rather than, you know, teach sustainability or climate as its own subject. Rather, it's important to embed it in everything. And, and I'll give an example that's not UBC, but you know, our federal government did what on the surface looked like a really nice thing. When, when the Trudeau government came into power, they renamed the Ministry of the Environment, the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change. And it looks great from the outset. I would say that was a big mistake, actually, because it made climate change yet again seem like an environmental issue, right? Whereas really what we need, climate change influences every part of government, right? And so, and, and I think the same is true within the university. So if we could organize a course like, like gentlemen's suggesting, it would be fantastic. I think the bureaucracy at UBC is actually harder to solve than climate change. So, I, so the other way to go about it is what we've been doing is trying to embed climate change sort of more within what's happening in every in every department and i think we have uh, there's a lot of amazing examples of that uh, um already at, at the university so yeah great question thank you uh, another uh, comment from the audience uh, my name is alan shapiro i'm a earth science instructor and communicator and one of my big interests is how do we take this knowledge in this room and in institutions like UBC and share it sort of outside the choir to the people who don't necessarily tune in to listen to climate change podcasts. And some of the science that's coming out and the research that's coming out in the communication space is showing that these teeth of climate change, these droughts and these floods that we've heard about earlier in the podcast, are really something that extends past partisanship and unites people and empowers people to do things in local communities. So my question is, what can we do to communicate climate change a little bit better outside progressive centers and start looking at what climate change means to people within their communities? Grace, I know, uh, again, this is something that you're, that you're working on within the climate hub, but as you mentioned, uh, circles are overlapping. Yeah, so this is definitely something we are thinking about because we think young people do have this space to play. They can go back to their parents and their grandparents and their communities and kind of um, say, we want you to take action or this matters to us or this is our future. Um, I know some of the social science has said that victims of climate change seem distance in time and space. So if you can say, actually, it's us, it's your children, um, not being able to leave full, full, rich lives, that can be a powerful way to communicate. I guess we're also really interested in having people self-actualize through the climate movement. So let's say they want to learn a skill or they're an artist or they're a poet or these other things. Um, having the movement just allow you to come in and become a better person or try something. And then, you know, once you've made a poem or you've made a song, you want to share that with the people that you love. So you bring it back to a community who might not already be a climate community, but um, 
we're going to try and help you make that comic or that graphic novel, and then you're going to share it with pride with these other people. And so we really think, like, hopeful youth storytelling hits a lot of the points from the social science uh, and is also powerful because young people will disproportionately bear um, the consequences of climate change. I, I always joke, I, my, my mom is always asking me about my dating life because she wants grandchildren. And I always ask her, I'm like, how's your climate activism going? <laughs> because because, you know, that's when you'll get grandchildren. Um, and I think that's like, that's a really powerful point, right? That we can all make and, and young people disproportionately care about climate change. That's what all the data says. So if we do go back to our communities and our families, I think we can break through some of those bubbles. We've, we've, run, out of, we've run out of time. We've run out of time. If in the next election, October 21st next year, if climate isn't the overwhelming issue that all parties are saying, yes, this is, if you elect us, this is going to be our highest priority. If, if climate doesn't escape being just another political football, then there's absolutely no way that we have a chance of reaching the 2030 target that IPCC says we have to meet. So, but do you think that, I mean, you've been working on this messaging for, for a I know, I'm a total time. failure. I don't know why I, I'm up here. <laughs> no, seriously. But do you I, think that it's fear or that it's hope that... No, I, okay... I'm trying to, Give it to, us to cobble together uh, a very broad uh, support. I'm getting in touch with Oxfam, MSF, uh, Red Cross, Doctors of Canada, the, the, the scientists of Canada, all coming together and beginning to speak out. The problem is we are a tribal animal. That's really the level at which we operate. Throughout all of history, we dealt with our tribe, that was our, our people. We've never had to deal on a, a level of, of this magnitude. The only time I've ever seen all people coming together and, and working together is when we're attacked by aliens from outer space. And they start killing people. Right away, the Russians are calling America. Well, I guess they're already doing that, but the <laughs> Russians are calling. You know, that's, but the, this time, the alien is us. And uh, we've somehow got to escape our tribal roots, which Trump is only exacerbating, and, and I believe that Scheer and these guys are doing the, the same thing, and Harper certainly did it in Canada. We've got to get out of that. It can't be a political issue now. It's got to be too important, uh, and it's got to be for all of us. So my plan is to go to universities uh, this fall and get university students. Some of them are going to start voting by October 21st, but get them recruited as, as spokespeople to find young people who will really drive it in the element, uh, elementary school, uh, high schools. And then we're going to have a series in early fall next year. We're going to have a series, where, and we're not going to rent the Orpheum Theater, we're going to rent stadiums, where we get 10, 15,000 people demanding that climate is the issue. And I guarantee we'll get Neil Young, we'll get Sarah McLaughlin, we'll get Serena Ryder, we'll get all these musicians for sure, and Margaret Atwood will come in, and this is what we've got to do, and it's got to be aimed at October 21st. And, you know, on a, a, a smaller scale, just a reminder that uh, this entire podcast is going to be released, packaged and released live, November 26th of this month. So Stephen will hear your pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be releasing this on, on all of our platforms uh, in, in just a couple of weeks. I think we have time for uh, another question. Hi. First of all, thank you for being here today. My name is Nathan Durek. I'm a freelance writer and editor here in Vancouver. I'm really heartened by all the things that we've talked about that youth can do. Uh, for myself, I have a three-year-old daughter. She doesn't really fit into that model of what she can learn in school yet. She still has a few years to go. But it's something that we're still trying to instill in her right now, before she gets into those years. What are things that we can do for kids that are that young, so that they grow up with these skills and they've never known life any way different? <laughs> Already done. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, a really interesting is, question. This is the first time in history you know your daughter is, hasn't got a chance at leading out a full life the way we old-timers have. That's the reality. So she can't fight for her future. You've brought her into this world. You've got to be the eco-warrior on her behalf. 
Let her follow her heart as she grows up, because we need everybody, you know, to, to see the world differently. And you will, you will raise her so that she sees the world differently. But right now, you've got to be a warrior on her, on her behalf. Every parent with young children ought to be at the forefront. Yeah, good, good luck to you and to all of us. Thank you. <laughs> this, is, this has been such a great discussion. Uh, I just want to end it off. I, we're going to unfortunately have to keep moving on. But Simon, can you just give us your vision of what 2050 would look like if we're successful in uh, mitigating climate change? Absolutely. And so I, one of the mistakes we make in talking about climate change is we don't think about the benefits of action for all these other things. So let's just imagine that we're in a world where we really had solved the major obstacle, you know, the major driver of climate change. We'd reduce greenhouse gas emissions to close to nothing, right? That means we're living in a world where our vehicles are mostly are powered by electricity or mostly powered by electricity. And that electricity is being generated um, in, by clean, clean forms of electricity. It's solar, it's wind, it's hydro, et cetera, right? Think about what, Vancouver would be like, right? Think about what our communities will be like. There'll be no more air pollution, right? Right? All of the soot, all the particulate matter, all of the, all of the toxic pollutants from cars, from power plants, et cetera, will be gone, right? It'll be a completely different experience to be on a downtown street in Vancouver. First of all, they'll be quiet, right? Because if there's vehicles moving around, they won't make a lot of noise. Electric vehicles are quiet, right? And the air will be clean. The streets will also be cleaner because there won't be soot and stuff settling on them, the same stuff that settles in your lungs. It's bad for asthmatics like myself, right? And this is just amazing to me. If we think about this, this is the scourge of the last century. Air pollution killed more people than the world wars combined, right? And we could eliminate it by doing things that would solve climate change, right? And it's just like this incredible co-benefit, and I don't know why we don't talk about this more. Well, let's give a big round of applause to that and to all of our panelists. Sorry we don't have time for more questions, but there will be uh, hopefully some mingling at the end. As the signs of climate change become more apparent, it is easy to feel hopeless. We do all need to remember that big things are happening all over the world. In the year and a half since we first produced the 2050 podcast, yes, there have been huge challenges, but check out just a few of the more positive recent headlines. California passed a law requiring the state to get 60% of its energy from clean sources by 2030. Volvo announced from 2019 onwards, it will only produce electric or hybrid cars. The Netherlands reimagined its coastlines to fortify against catastrophic flooding, and it costs less money than what goes into the U.S. National Insurance Fund for Natural Disasters. Kenya and Rwanda banned plastic bags. So if we all continue to believe we can do something, maybe we will rewrite our future before we hit that 2050 tipping point. Good morning, Ariadne. It's time to wake up. It is 8 a.m. on Monday, December 5th. The temperature is 7 degrees Celsius. A mix of sun and cloud is in the forecast. Today is the 25th annual Carbon Neutral Day in British Columbia. A reminder that solar panel maintenance and cleaning are scheduled this morning. Please make sure to close your bedroom windows before leaving for school. Your agenda today includes a meeting with the UBC Climate Hub's Junior Caucus. The meeting is scheduled for 3.30. The SkyTrain is experiencing no current delays. Thank you, Ava. I'm really looking forward to today's meeting. We're going to be planning our field trip to the vertical farm. Again, I want to thank all our panelists. Simon Donner, Associate Professor of Climatology at the University of British Columbia. Grace Nozick, PhD law student and founding member of the student-led UBC Climate Hub. Environmentalist David Suzuki, scientist, educator, and longtime host of The Nature of Things. Thank you. Huge shout out to Gloria Makarenko and Stephen Quinn, uh, Polly Legere, uh, Ariadne Weber Madison. Thank you so much for returning as your voice of uh, Ariadne of the future and uh, the computer. 
and to uh, Stephen Shepard from UBC's Urban Forestry Program and William Chung, the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at UBC and Deborah Hartford from SFU. Thank you. And a huge thank you to our technical crew, Matthias Wolfson, Will Howie, Christian Amundsen, Rachel Sanders, Teresa Duvall, uh, Sherelle Tobin. This bonus episode, which really is uh, possibly the best episode, we've never tried anything live before. And I would say this is a huge success. None of this would have been possible without uh, all of these people. So thank you. And... Thank you so much, all of you, for joining this episode of 2050. On a personal note, I uh, I haven't lost hope. And, uh, you know, in case you haven't noticed, I will be attempting to welcome a, a human into the world in the spring. So, you know, I am a, a, a climate fighter now more than ever. So uh, I remain hopeful. Thank you. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.